It has been said that the writers of the Bible borrowed or stole accounts from Greek and Roman mythology in order to create their own accounts of Jesus Christ. But could a closer examination of the evidence actually reveal Christ through the ancient myths? Could it be that Jesus not only fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, but he also fulfilled the yearnings of the pagan people about their mythology? Greek mythology is like a candle. The Bible is like the sun. What if the reason that Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that came true or the myth that became fact? Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah, he not only fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets, he fulfills the highest yearnings of the pagan people. That's why he's not just the Jewish Messiah, he's the savior of the world. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. I did throw out a poll on Instagram yesterday, so if you're following us on Instagram, you'd know about this. And about 10% of the people said, yes, they did. They stole from Greek mythology, while 90% of you guys said, no, they didn't steal from Greek mythology. So what's the truth? Well, you and I are about to find out. If you're joining us from Facebook or YouTube or on our podcast or television show, please like, follow, and subscribe. As always, you are going to tune into an amazing conversation, and we want you to be aware about these every single week. By the way, I don't know if you realize what you're doing when you're joining us online like that, but uh, you're actually you're actually watching the Creation Today community, kind of peeking into the Creation Today community. We're just a group of people that are being discipled through weekly conversations so that we can be everything God has called us to be. We want people to stop believing things that are wrong because it's hurting them. And honestly, it's hurting the cause of Christ. That's why we're on a mission to have Creation Today partners pushing the creation message to the ends of the earth because everybody deserves to know their creator. Uh, we'd love you to join us. If you ever want to join our community and help us reach more people with the truth of creation, come on over to creationtoday.org and let's change the world together. Hey, to my Creation Today partners out here, man, Gary and Cheryl and Brad and Andrew and Lisa and Jonathan and John and everybody else that's already on here live with me, Thank you. You guys are going to love today's show. Before I introduce my guests, though, I want to throw out a little welcome to our new creation partners that have just joined us. So to Eric and to Guy and Melinda and Michelle and John and Sharon and Douglas and Dylan and Donald and Ted and Angela and Ashley and Rob and Irvin and Ken and Upton and April. Thank you guys for being partners of creation today and helping us reach the world with the gospel. It truly is a blessing. Now, if you've been a Creation Today partner for more than, I want to say, eight months or so, then you're not only going to be familiar with our guest, you can't wait to hear him, okay? Dr. Marcos joined us for a conversation last year as we discussed the reality that we're losing our children in the battle for the American schools. He is a professor of English and a scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. He's the author of 25 different books, published books, and 300 articles and reviews in many different journals. He remains an incredibly popular public speaker. 
in Houston. He gives lectures on topics like C.S. Lewis, uh, apologetics, education, ancient Greece, ancient Rome. I mean, the guy is amazing. He believes that knowledge must not be walled up in the academic circles, but it must be disseminated to everybody who has ears to hear. So he is a kindred spirit with me like that. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Marcos. Dr. Marcos, welcome to the Creation Today Show. Hey, thanks, Eric. It's great to be back on here. I'm really excited listening to your introduction. It's time to dive in and fight for truth. I got to say, watching you interact with high school students right here in Pensacola at Trinitas Christian School was a highlight. It was a treat for me. You, you are an engaging speaker, a knowledgeable communicator, and I'm telling you, I, 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 well, I just read, I'm, I'm on chapter, what am I on? There's like 60 chapters in your book that I just read or that I'm going through. So I haven't made it through all of it. I apologize, but myth made fact. Oh my goodness. This is, this is mind blowing truth to me. I mean, I've been a Christian for years and I'm going, this is stuff I've never heard before. How long have you been studying this? Uh, I guess most of my life. I'm, I'm actually the uh, grandson of four Greek immigrants. All four of my grandparents were born in Greece, came to America about 1930. So the Marcos family has been almost 100 years in America. And so I grew up on Greek mythology, not only because that's our Western culture, but it's like my people's story. So that's, <laughs> as they say, it was mother's milk to me. So I've always studied Greek mythology. And when my kids were growing up, when they were little, uh, and they're both teaching for classical schools now, because of all this, uh, I would some days teach them Bible stories. Some days I teach them Greek mythology. And one day they asked me, what's the difference between the two? And I said that Greek mythology is like a candle. The Bible is like the sun. And if you go on my webpage, you've got two children's novels, The Dreaming Stone and In the Shadow of Troy with the third one coming, where I try to make a children's novel out of that idea, that mythology is the candle that points the way towards the sun, the pure revelation. And Eric, isn't it wonderful that in our language, S-U-N and S-O-N are a homonym. I don't know if that works in any other language, uh, but the risen sun is also the risen sun, S-O-N, which is sort of amazing. So uh, if we think about it in terms of the pure light or the greater light and the lesser light, if, you, if we think of mythology as the moon, right, which is reflected light from the sun, and the Bible as the sun itself, I think it will help us to understand the relation. Let, let's, let's just get a good start for this, Eric, thinking about your introduction here. I bet a lot of us, especially if you're my age or around then, maybe you were in sixth grade, you were in public school, you were taking social studies, because nobody has taught history in America for a very long time, social studies, which is not the same thing, but let's not get on that, on that tangent. Okay, and in your social studies class, you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is wonderful, right? Anybody that's read it remembers it. And it includes a flood story. And if you had a typical secular teacher who grew up going to secular schools, she said to you, now children, we now know that almost every ancient culture has a story of a global flood. And that just proves that the story of Noah is just a myth. And Eric, even at the young age of 11, I remember thinking, uh, there's another way to read that data, right? I mean, I agree with the data, but there's two different ways to interpret it. If every culture, and that includes like the Aborigines and the Native American Indians and the Chinese all over the world, if everyone has a myth of a global flood, that suggests to me that there was a global flood. 
Yes. And perhaps in every other culture, it retained only mythic value. But in the inspired Old Testament in Genesis, it has a more historical account of what's going on. So again, we have to understand the vital difference between data and the interpretation. Here, here's one more before we go on. Many of you have probably seen a picture that Darwinian evolutionists love to use, and it's called homology. And it shows you the arm of a man, the wing of a bat, the dorsal fin of a whale, and it says, here is proof of evolution. And I thought, well, maybe, but another way to read that data is that there is a common uh, designer and the guy's not gonna keep reinventing the wheel. So again, the evidence is there, but what is the best interpretation of that evidence? And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book and others of my books do this as well. We need to be more careful and more discerning at the way we interpret the data. Well, I, I got to tell you, for, for some of you that are listening right now, you're going to hear us, you're going to, I say us, you're going to hear Dr. Marcos talk about the idea that maybe God is fulfilling some Greek mythology, Roman mythology, as well as Old Testament prophecy. And when I first heard this, I, honestly, it was like, do, 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 like for real, because everything I've heard Dr. Marcos is the exact opposite, is we we stole from all of them. We're, we're the thieves, we're the, and it's, to, to get into your book, by the way, if you have not read The Myth Made Fact, now, Dr. Marcus, I did get it on audiobook, and normally I listen at two times the speed. Uh-uh, 1x, baby, with you, 1x. That's all I could handle. And, oh, my goodness, the way you tell the story, and then you lay out, here's the facts, and then what are the interpretations? Beautifully done. I, I just I can't believe you, you, you wrote it, you researched it, you wrote it, you read it, and, and I get to just consume this knowledge for, what, 15, 20 bucks. It was amazing. So you need to get, if you guys haven't got that, you need to get that. But yeah, let's jump into this and, and kind of set us up because there, there are some of us going to go, no way, it's the exact opposite of everything I've been thinking and everything I've been told. Well, the best way is to start with the story. And this is the story that gives the origin of the title of my book, The Myth Made Fact. Now, I'm sure most of your listeners are fans of C.S. Lewis. How could they not be? And most <laughs> of them probably know that Lewis spent a good portion of his life as an atheist before becoming a Christian. But a lot of people think, and I used to think this, that he went directly from atheism to Christianity. And that's the story of Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell and uh, Chuck Colson, three of the greatest American apologists. But that's not Lewis's story if you read Surprised by Joy. First, at about the age of 30, he became a theist, a believer in God. But it took him another, say, year and a half before he could believe that Jesus was the son of God. Now, now, Eric, what was stopping him? What was stopping him is absolutely central to our discussion this afternoon, because what was stopping him is Lewis was an English professor like I am, and he was a lover of mythology, not just Greek and Roman, but Norse, and Babylonian, Egyptian, everything. And he was a big fan of a book called The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Now, that name is not well known today, but some of your listeners might have heard of Joseph Campbell. He wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces and The Power of Myth. And nerds like us know about him because he profoundly influenced George Lucas when he did the original Star Wars trilogy. Because uh, this guy, Jordan, uh, um, Joseph Campbell, like uh, uh, James Frazier, is a sort of comparative anthropologist 
or a comparative mythologist. They, they study the myths and the, the rituals of all different people groups, and they try to look for connections, which I love to do myself. Right? And let's go back now to Sir James Fraser, a little over a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, he's Victorian. He identified a certain archetype, a, a kind of character or ritual that, that appears again and again across culture and across religion. And he called it, the, we called it the corn god, but we usually say the corn king today. That's how Lewis referred to it. And the corn king is a ritual or a myth that appears in all different forms. And it's a story of a god or a demigod who comes to earth, often dies a violent death, and then returns. Now, it's not a literal resurrection. What it really is, is a seasonal myth, a myth about the seasonal cycle of life and death and rebirth. And some of the well-known names of these corn kings would be Osiris in Egypt, or Adonis, or Bacchus in Greece, or Tammuz in Babylonia, or, or Mithras in Persia, or, or Balder among the, the Norse, right? This story is ubiquitous. It comes up in all different places. And now, James Fraser was a Victorian, so he didn't come out and say it, but basically he suggests that Jesus is just a myth. And for a long time, Lewis believed that Jesus of Nazareth was just the Hebrew version of the same corn king myth. And Eric, if you go on atheist websites, they're still peddling the same thing. Hey, look at this Mithras guy. He sounds so much like Jesus. Must just be a myth. And that's what Lewis was stuck. Right? He couldn't get out of that. And then one day, uh, he was 32 years old. He was taking a walk around this beautiful tree-lined path on the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford. It's called Addison's Walk. Everybody should go there, sort of a pilgrimage for Christians. And he was talking with his good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Lord of the Rings, very strong, committed Catholic. And there was also another man, Hugo Dyson. And as they walked, it was kind of late in the evening, around and around, this issue came up. And when Lewis again said, I can't believe in some dead rabbi, what's it got to do? It's just a myth. Tolkien said to him, Lewis, Jack was his nickname, what if the reason that Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that came true or the myth that became fact? Now, what does he mean by that? Okay, look, how is it that this same story or archetype appears all over the place? The only, to me, logical, but look, Carl Jung would say, it's the collective unconscious. But where did the collective unconscious come from? That doesn't answer anything, right? It's ridiculous. So where did it come from? Well, it makes sense to me. If we were all created in the image of the same God, he would have placed in all of us this yearning, this need, this desire, right? The, the, the ancient pagans did not really understand sin because they didn't have a holy God to measure it against. But Eric, they had the word taboo, which which we still use today, they understood that there were certain crimes like patricide or incest that carried a kind of ritual guilt, a taboo guilt that brings corruption to the whole community. And often the corn king myth of life, death, and rebirth is linked in many ways to this taboo, this ritual, this need for redemption from sin. Or again, they wouldn't use that word, but it's the same idea. This kind of ritual guilt that we cannot erase on our own. It needs blood. It needs something else, right? So here we go. So if that is, God has written eternity in the hearts of men, Ecclesiastes. If that's the case, then doesn't it make sense that when the actual creator God enacts our salvation 
actually does it in real time, in real place, in human history, he'll do it in a way that speaks not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. I, I don't know if this ever bothers you, Eric, but are you telling me that before Jesus came, God simply ignored 99% of humanity? That doesn't make sense. Now, only exactly. to the Jews did he speak directly, but he didn't ignore the Gentiles. He spoke to them through what we call general revelation, through creation, through conscience, through reason, through imagination, through what Lewis called the good dreams of the pagans. So what's the good news, Eric? And you, you sort of said it in your introduction. Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah. He not only fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets, he fulfills the highest yearnings of the pagan people. That's why he's not just the Jewish Messiah. He's the savior of the world. That's beautiful. I mean, this, this for, for those of you watching and you've had questions about this, because if you've done any kind of uh, soul searching or any kind of why am I here and you've looked at any of the religions, you're going to have come up against what looks like a contradictory uh, series of stories or of accounts between the, the gods that, that happen and then between the Bible, you know, let alone in, internal uh, uh, religion. So this to me, I mean, I'm telling you, it's like an aha moment, Dr. Marcos, of Wow. And then to go through, okay, you got to just take us through some of the stories and show us examples of this, because to me, that's where the, the flesh gets on the bones here of that's, that's actually really possible. It's actually really true. This, Jesus could have been fulfilling multiple things as well as all the Old Testament prophecy, which just expands my mind greatly. It's pretty impressive. Well, let's just start with Genesis 3, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, right? Now, if Genesis is true, right? that Adam and Eve are different than Abraham. In other words, Abraham is the father, the blood father of the Jewish people. But Adam and Eve are the father and mother of all humanity. We're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, as it says in Narnia, right? So we, we need to understand that that's a, that's a deep story. And if it's true, it should exist in some way in the collective memory of all people, right? Because that, that's the beginning of humanity. All right, let's look at two the extremely well-known myths, I think almost everybody will recognize these names right away, Prometheus and Pandora. Let's look at these two classic myths that come up again and again. They're retold all the time. And uh, there we go. We got, we got I, I the, say, the chart there. I, mythology. Didn't, Wonderful. I, didn't, I, I didn't grow up with this stuff. So for me, you say names like that, and I'm like, okay, where do they fit? And then, so this one I think is Greek gods. Is it is it true that you can kind of take the Greek gods and then the Roman and the Egyptian and there's parallels? It's just different names for, quote, the same people. Am I getting that correct? It, 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 yes and no, because I used to think, oh, the Romans took the Greek gods and changed their names. What actually happened is that the Romans had their own pantheon and then they connected them. It's called syncretism. So it's like, hey, this okay. Jupiter sounds a lot like Zeus. And put now, remember, that's the one thing that you don't. If you want to get Yahweh very, very upset, you do that. Okay, that's that's why there is no Yahweh Jupiter. Okay, the Greeks and Romans had no okay. problem saying Zeus Jupiter, right? Or or, or Zeus Jupiter. What's his name? Ammon and, and the Egyptians, right? But God absolutely forbids that. But in other words, there is this understanding of gods and nature and things like that. And these connections start to be made, right? Okay. Now the uh, way back in the beginning, right there, there is the original deities are the earth and the sky and the children of the earth and the sky 
uh, you know, Gaia and Uranus. Those children are called the Titans, right? And Prometheus was one of the Titans. Uh, now, his name means forethought, Prometheus, forethought, because every word is Greek. Uh, so his name means forethought. And uh, Zeus, with the help of Prometheus, Zeus, who is the next generation, they're called the Olympian gods. With the help of Prometheus, Zeus overthrew the Titans and he became the sort of king of the universe. And Prometheus was on his side, but then Prometheus got upset because Zeus started becoming unjust, just like his father and grandfather before him. And one of the things that Zeus did is he treated mankind very poorly. He left us to die and you know fend for ourselves. And so Prometheus, a friend of man, decided to help man by stealing the fire from Zeus and giving it as a gift to man. Now, remember, fire not only helps us to cook our food, warm our bodies, protect us from wild animals, fire is also the crucible of creativity. All of the original arts, if you will, carpentry and, and uh, metal, metal making and, and, and pottery and glass blowing, all of those need fire. Right? So this is like the, the, the wisdom, the, the creative fire that he gives to us. Now, to punish him, Zeus takes Prometheus and chains him to a rock, strips him naked, chains him to the Caucasus, which is between uh, Europe and Asia. And there he leaves him. And every day, a giant eagle, sometimes it's a vulture, a giant eagle comes down and devours Prometheus's liver. But then every night, the liver grows back. So the next day, the eagle can come again and devour him. Now, Eric, a lot of people think that eagle is, is a myth, but that eagle exists. We call it the IRS. I don't know if you know that, okay? It devours <laughs> our money, gives it a year to grow back. So, I mean, you know, some of these stories are, are actually very true. <laughs> anyway, there he suffered. And I mean, he's almost quite literally crucified, this friend of man crucified upon the wall until after a thousand years, Hercules who is a son of Zeus and very much a Christ figure, uh, breaks the chain, kills the eagle, and releases Prometheus. Now, what's fascinating about the Prometheus myth is just think about it for a moment. He is a very odd mixture of Christ and Satan. Now, what do, what do we mean? That's kind of crazy. In a, in a way, he's like Satan because he's a rebel against God and steals the forbidden wisdom, because in some ways, fire is like the fruit of the knowledge of good and of evil. He's stealing the fruit of good and evil and giving it to man. But in some ways, that is ripping us out of our innocence. But of course, he's a Christ figure because he's suffering for mankind, right? So always, right, the myth is never going to be exactly the same. The myth is going to have a seed of truth because we were all created in God's image. But mixed with it are going to be bits and pieces of horror and error and untruth and things like that. But there is an understanding there of punishment, right, of, of knowledge and how that's a good thing, but it can bring punishment as well. Now, let's factor into this Pandora. Okay, Prometheus, whose name means forethought, had a brother named Epimetheus. And his name means afterthought, okay? He's a little bit clueless. And the <laughs> gods in the story have not created a woman yet. 
and they decide to create the first woman. And so they create her, and then all the gods give her a gift of beauty and, and wisdom and, and uh, athletics and talent, all, all these sorts of things. And the Greek word for all is pan, like panhellenic, and the Greek word for gift is Dora. So Pandora means all the gift. She's the first woman. They send her to the earth, but she's given a box, a little chest that's, that's closed and, and sealed, and she's told, never, never open this box. Right? And so they marry her off to Epimetheus, who was kind of clueless. He didn't realize this girl was a lot of trouble. Right? And everything goes well for a while, but then curiosity grips her. I, I, I must see what's in there. I must take that fruit. Right? And so in the middle of the night, while her husband's asleep, she goes over and just cracks open the lid just to take a look. And immediately the lid flies open and all the evil in the world flies out. War and pestilence and disease and, 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 and anger and, and all the death. All of these things are flying into the world. Right. And she immediately shuts the, the, the lid. But it's too late. It's all escaped. Right. Again, this strange story of this woman that seeks forbidden knowledge and unleashes ultimately death and disease and despair and war into the world. But it doesn't quite end there. As Pandora hangs her head in shame and, and horror, she hears a still small voice, Pandora, let me out. And she trusts the voice. So she opens the lid and out comes hope. And that hope is in the world trying to bring us hope in the midst of all the evils that are there. Now, this is kind of amazing, okay? Because if you read Genesis 3 carefully, almost immediately after Eve eats of the apple and gives it to Adam, sin and death are released into the world, there actually is hope, right? It's called by theologians the proto-evangelium. In other words, the first gospel, the first evangel or first good news. Because as God is cursing the man, the woman, and the serpent, he gives a seed of hope. He says to the woman and the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent shall bite his heel, but the seed of the woman shall crush his head. And this is the first prophecy of the death and resurrection of Christ. And the reason why it's the same and yet different than Pandora is in both cases, it's hope. But in the Pandora story, the hope is kind of free-floating. It's not linked to anything. It's, it's almost more wishful thinking. It, it's not, it doesn't have concreteness. But that proto-evangelium, that, that verse of hope, is a seed that thousands and thousands of years later will become Christ. And again, it's such an exact uh, uh, prophecy, Eric, right? Uh, literally, when, when Satan got us, humanity, to put Christ on the cross, he literally bit his heel. But the cross led to the resurrection yes. by which Christ crushed the head of the serpent. So from Pandora and Prometheus together, we get an understanding of fall and redemption, of forbidden knowledge of all of these things, and also of hope. Wow. Now, for the person out there saying, Dr. Marcus, you're, you're, reading, you're reading backwards into this. You're... you're, you're yeah. Help them, and I, I, I know in the second half we'll kind of go into more of these stories, but for those that are joining us that, that are going to be cut off here in just a few minutes because they're on Facebook or YouTube or, or watching the television show, 
help them see backwards the correct way. Help them to see that this is the candle and that what we have is the sun on that story, on Prometheus, on Pandora's box. I, I, I never knew Pandora's box. I think that's awesome. It's amazing. And to me, I'll make an analogy. I wish I could have been there with Saul of Tarsus in the desert, right? Because after the road to Damascus experience, if you, if you put together the Bible carefully, it appears that before he really started his ministry, he went into the desert of Arabia for maybe as much as three years to prepare. And just, I want you to Think about this, right? Paul was a Pharisee. He probably would have had much of the Old Testament memorized. And I wish I could have been there as Paul, knowing what he knows now, just sits down and goes through all of the Old Testament. And I can imagine, aha, aha, aha. Oh my gosh, it's so clear. And that's the kind of vision we bring when we realize that we are all made in God's image. And though we are fallen and depraved, we still maintain the imago Dei. The image of God is still in us, right? It is the, the pagans may not have the answers, but they know the questions. And they ask those questions in ways that still reverberate. That's why until fairly recently, Greek mythology was the raw material for most great literature, classical music, ballet, Art, I mean, almost all of it, that is kind of the way of the King Arthur myths function uh, in, in, in England or something like that, but on an even higher scale, a greater scale. So we need to realize, again, I mean, uh, first of all, we have got to understand what total depravity does and does not mean. Total depravity means that all parts of us were subjected to the fall. In other words, it's not like my reason is perfect, right? Every, my body, my soul, my reason, my imagination, everything is subjected to the fall. But total depravity does not mean utter depravity. It doesn't mean that our black is God's white and our white is God's black, okay? Uh, Lewis talks about this a lot. It, it's, think about it this way, okay? The Magi, uh, you know, in the journey of the Magi, did not have access to the Old Testament, right? They followed their limited wisdom, their yearning, their, their understanding that there is truth in the stars. And that's biblical, right? I mean, the, the star of David, right? God, God wrote it into the stars. Stars don't control us, but God often speaks through creation. The heavens are telling the glory of the Lord, the skies proclaiming his handiwork, Psalm 19, right? So I want you to think about these magi. When they come before the Christ child, they could have said, forget it, this is ridiculous. Why did I come a thousand miles for this child? I'm leaving, right? But that's not what they say. What they basically say is, yes, this is what we've been looking for all our lives. I never would have guessed it, but now that I see it, I recognize that this is the Savior of the world. And I know that's what they're thinking because the Bible says that they not only gave him gifts, it says they worshipped him. They knelt before a baby and worshipped him and gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So what I'm saying is that there was obviously truth in the astrological, uh, you know, wisdom of these magi because it properly led them to Christ. But when they got there, they realized that this was the culmination. So maybe think of yourself as a magi as you're reading these myths and looking, because they should be there, right? I mean, if look, if, if Jesus came and yes, fulfilled all the Old Testament law and prophets, but nothing in the gospel 
had any connection to the, the myths and rituals of 99% of the rest of the people of the world, then it would seem as if a foreign god had invaded us. But that's not what happened. Again, he's the savior of the world. All roads lead to him, if followed properly, lead to him. Now that it, it, it followed properly. That boy, so many quotes in here. The the pagans may not have the answers, but they know the questions to ask. Oh wow! Can that help lead them to what the truth is? This is fascinating to me. I'm going to continue learning from your book. You do teach at Houston Christian, um, and I know I did not get to take your class this last semester. But you're are you teaching again this next semester? Oh yes, I am teaching a class every. Uh, every Monday from 4 to 6.30 p.m. That's Central Time, so it would be 5 to 7.30 if you're Eastern Standard Time. Uh, and it's a class on the Lord of the Rings. And you can sign up to audit my class. I think it costs about $300. But then by direct Zoom, by a live direct Zoom, you can join the class as we go through the Lord of the Rings. And I'll also talk about the Silmarillion and Hobbit, and I'll talk about Beowulf, which was a huge influence. But we're really going to dig into the Lord of the Rings and understand the full legendarium, uh, as they call it. Trying again, trying to get uh, the word out and, and and all of these things, uh, because there's just there's so much to learn, right? And I think we're the stronger for learning. Look, the Bible is the only book we need, but it's not the only book we should read. Okay, uh, and 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 uh, if God gives us the ability to read and learn and grow, we should do it. We should be like Moses, who learned all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and yes. Daniel, who learned all the wisdom of the Babylonians and Persians, wow. and therefore wow. were servants of God. Hey, Facebook, YouTube, uh, my podcast audience and television audience, thank you for joining us for the first half of this conversation. I want to continue on. I want to find out, does, does Dr. Marcos know what percentage he thinks is like really pointing versus just kind of made up stuff? I want to and I want to go into some more of these. We've looked at one I want to, or two. I want to go into some more of these and find out how do these stories actually point to the truth of who Jesus is? How are they the candle that's proclaiming a son is coming? Uh, if you guys want to join me next week, I'll be right here at noon so you can join me. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, men and women's brains, believe it or not. The science of the brain are men and women different. Some of you got some friends that you need to tell. Hey, tune in next week, okay? I got some info for you. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. Look forward to seeing you in that show next week. If you want to join us, come on over to creationtoday.org and help us reach the world for Christ. Thank you for joining us for this engaging conversation. To view this and many more conversations in their entirety, we invite you to partner with us at creationtoday.org partner.